I guess it was about third or fourth grade that I got hooked on R&B and early rock and roll. I just became a fanatical record collector, even at that age, you know. Not a massive collection, but I just got addicted to records and reading the labels and, you know, the whole gestalt. And then I convinced my father to get me a set of drums and picked up a couple of Gene Krupa and Max Roach and Art Blakey records just for the drum solos. Eventually, I started to listen to the music before and after the drum solos, and then I got just totally strung out on jazz. It just became my preoccupation for life. That's Michael Kuskuna, co-founder of Mosaic Records. Mosaic is known for its exquisitely constructed box sets, which reach deep into the archives of legendary record labels like Capitol and Blue Note. I'm David Gorin, and this is Jazz Stories from Jazz at Lincoln Center. In this interview from July 2012, Michael Kuskuna traces his path from radio DJ at the University of Pennsylvania to record producer and archivist. I was going to the University of Pennsylvania, and um, when I got there, which was in 1966, um, I was never athletic, so I wasn't doing any sports activities, and I was looking for something to do related to music, so I went up there and uh, met the guy who was the jazz director, uh, who was a couple of years older than me, and um, he'd been doing like shows five nights a week and was looking to, for a break, so I, I got on the air right away, and I, I really enjoyed it. I liked programming music. I liked making segues that work and building a thread, a thematic thing, like dealing with Jimmy Jufri as a composer instead of as a clarinetist. I would pick topics and build shows around them. It was great fun. And then I realized what the true great aspect of radio is, free records. And my collection started to grow exponentially. I started a Saturday afternoon show to play, for lack of a better term, album rock, because I was getting drawn in by friends into a lot of interesting records that were coming out at the time. You know, Jefferson Airplane, Country Joe and the Fish, uh, the Rolling Stones were getting really interesting at that point in time. So I started the show to play blues and album rock and mix in some jazz. and. It's something that happened simultaneously all over the country. I mean, it was just popping up everywhere because it was such a logical thing to do for people that had outgrown top 10 AM radio, you know. And I thought of radio as something that I enjoyed doing. I never thought of it as a way to make a living. But while I was still at college, I got hired by WMMR to do the, their nighttime show. And then I got hired to do the morning show at WPLJ in New York, and I was dying to get back to New York anyway. I didn't like getting up at five in the morning, but the morning show was interview and call-in and music, any mix that I wanted to do of that. So that was great, because if I wanted to meet someone or I was fascinated by someone, I'd book them on the show and uh, talk to them. And the people calling in were great. It was really fun to do. And you you know, you could go from playing Jefferson Airplane to Ornette Coleman to Aretha Franklin. And, um, you know, as long as you made it make sense, it was great radio, you know, and it was exposing people to uh, things that they might not have experienced otherwise. 
So I loved it. And it paid really well, you know? And I thought, boy, this is really great. I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this and getting paid well. But um, what happened was that around, at the end of 1971, the forces at American Broadcasting Company, which owned PLJ and six other stations around the country, they were losing money on the FM operation, and they went to playlist format. And the second they went to a playlist format, I was out the door. I said, God, no. And as luck would have it, an old friend of mine from Philadelphia who had become a record producer at Atlantic Records, Joel Dorn, his secretary used to listen to my show on PLJ. And the day I did my final show, I announced that I was leaving. And that was on a Saturday. And on Monday morning, she tells Joel, you know, your old friend from Philly is leaving radio. The same day, he calls me up. He says, you know, I'm looking for an assistant producer here at Atlantic Records. You know, are you interested? And I jumped at the chance. I had been, you know, producing some records on a freelance basis, but, um, you know, to really get into the mix and to do it at Atlantic Records was something that really excited me. You know, they were the first label, I think, to actually, like, credit producers on uh, in the album credits and engineers, too. Columbia n never did. You know, none of the majors did. But it was a great time because... Atlantic at the time was at 1841 Broadway on Columbus Circle. And they had the second, third, and was part of the fourth floor in that building. And everything Atlantic, from royalty department to A&R to promotion to the recording studios, was all in that one place. And literally, the recording studio was about a 70-yard walk from my office. And the company was crawling with musicians and artists all the time. It was a completely integrated company, and it was a music-oriented company. And if you go up to a record company today, you couldn't find any of that ambiance and any of that camaraderie and any of that like feeling that music is the thing that matters most. So I was very lucky to get in as sort of at the tail end of the real record companies before they became corporate record companies. You know, Atlantic was a great place to work because everybody there was very musically oriented and a lot of people shared my eclecticism, including Nesui Erdogan, who was one of the company owners and founders. And um, For example, when I wanted to sign the Art Ensemble of Chicago, you know, I didn't know how Nesui would feel about that, but he got it instantly. And, of course, he got it instantly because I realized... You know, he signed Dornette Coleman and he signed John Coltrane. So, yeah, of course, he'd get it, you know. But I got to work with everyone from, like, Dave Brubeck to Oscar Brown Jr. to the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And I got a, a lot of producing experience. And I also learned at that point how to uh, put together, for more commercial albums, how to put together a great rhythm section and how to build an album from the bottom up. Because without a, the right rhythm section, you're, you're screwed. But on the off times, when you know, I wasn't making a record every week. And on the off times, I started to go into the vaults because the two people that meant the most to me in, in the world were Ray Charles and John Coltrane. And I wanted to see if there was any unissued music by them. And as I explored the vaults 
there more, I found there was a lot of unissued music. There was good Mingus, there was good Chick Corea, there was excellent uh, Coltrane, Warren Marsh, a lot, of, a lot of different people. And that got me interested in sort of the archival aspect of reissues and not just a straight reissue. I mean, anybody can do that, but to improve it by discovering unissued uh, music that's worthy of coming out. And I know there's a lot of unissued music that should never come out and hopefully never will. But I mean, th there still is, a, there's a lot of good music in the vaults that got left there for one reason or another. So th that set me on a, a road of um, doing archival reissues and researching vaults. And that, of course, eventually led to uh, my founding of Mosaic Records. But of course, th there was a stop along the way because as a kid, I mean, I, I once I got into jazz, I soon discovered Blue Note Records and I became like um, an avid follower of all things Blue Note. And um, when I started producing records and getting to know musicians, invariably I would overhear conversations or engage people in conversations about unissued Blue Note sessions. It seemed that there were a lot of unissued sessions that never saw the light of day. I began to keep like a diary of all this information that musicians would tell me. And that became a real obsession. And I banged on Blue Note's door for two years and got no response. And then finally in 1975, I was producing a, a Chico Hamilton record for Blue Note. And I flew out to LA to uh, master it with Chico. And I met Charlie Laurie, who had just joined Blue Note and who was a major jazz fan. And I took the opportunity to show him my, my notebook. And he said, oh, God, yeah, no, you got a job. Go in. So I extended my stay from two days to six weeks, and I dove into the Blue Note vaults at that time. The first day going into the Blue Note vaults was one of the most exhilarating and depressing days of my life because... We went down to the studio, which was on 3rd Street off La Cienega in L.A. It had been the Pacific Jazz uh, recording studio, and then it became the United Artists recording studio. And at the end of the block, on a second floor, there was a large space that was just a storage facility for the Blue Note unissued tapes. So we walked down there, and I mean, I was practically trembling at the idea as we walked through the door and there was just steel shelf after steel shelf with reels and reels of tapes i can't even guess how many reels of tapes there were and i started to pull them off the shelves and it would the uh, reel would say jackie mclean april 4th 1964 reel one reel two reel three but there was no information no tunes no take numbers no personnel absolutely nothing and it soon dawned on me that i was going to have to do this the hard way because there were no files there they didn't have the paperwork that uh, would have you know given me the guide to to uh, all the information i needed so i i began doing things like let's say a, a jackie mclean all right so i take a jackie mclean record i'd listen to the session reels and i'd try to identify the people oh you know, a lot of people are easy to identify, others not so much. But I'd um, listen and I'd say, oh, okay, that's Charles Tolliver on trumpet, and that's, it's got to be Jack DeJanet on drums. And I'd make cassettes and I'd send one to Jackie, I'd make one to, send one to Charles and one to DeJanet, and they would 
try to identify the other musicians and try to identify the tunes. And I found a great system for helping to identify tunes was that Blue Note, like all record companies in the 60s, they published most of the originals that were on their records. And I would go into the BMI database and get printouts like if the Jackie McLean records was April 4th, 1964, I get a printout for everything that Blue Note registered with BMI for the six or eight weeks after that. And then I would see, oh, okay, yeah, there's a Charles Tolliver composition. And I'd be able to then go back and identify it that way. So there was a lot of Sherlock Holmes type uh, gumshoe work. And then finally, about two years later, someone in, in Japan discovered a Xerox of Alfred's file that had all the information on the unissued stuff. So that made things a lot easier. What had happened to the records? They had been lost, the original? Yeah, you know, things, when record companies swallow other record companies and then they move offices and, and they move from the East Coast to the West Coast, so much stuff gets lost. You know, and the fact is it still may exist in some deep storage somewhere, but it wasn't accessible, so it might as well have not existed, you know. But fortunately... Somebody in uh, in one of the Japanese companies got access to this stuff, and um, it, it made my life a lot easier. And, you know, over the period of, I guess, from 1975 till things ground to a halt in 1981, between Japan and the U.S., I got out of over 100 um, unissued albums of really first-class material. It was in 1982 that I, um, Charlie Laurie and I uh, wanted to team up and we wanted to get EMI, which was now the owner of Blue Note and all the other labels, we wanted to get Blue Note reactivated. So we put together like an eight or nine page proposal for signing artists and, and developing a staff and, and doing reissues because a lot of stuff was out of print at that time. And um, one little thing I put in there was that I, we would like to, as part of the catalog initiative, we'd like to do some box sets. And the reason I got hung up on the idea of a box set was that in going through all the Blue Note vaults, I found about 25 minutes of great unissued Thelonious Monk, mostly alternate takes, but a couple of tunes that hadn't been issued either. And I was, I was very frustrated because I said, man, even if we get back on track so I can start releasing more unissued material, I can't put out a 25-minute record. And then it dawned on me as just trying to solve a puzzle. I said, well, but if I took all the Thelonious Monk stuff and put it all in chronological order instead of in the scattershot way that it came out on 12-inch LP because it was music from the 78 era. If I did that, it would come out to four albums perfectly. It would time itself out perfectly. So that put the bug in my head for doing box sets. And even before Capitol Records said no to us, I started one night to cost out doing uh, a box set like this with a you know a full lavish booklet and I called Charlie up I said you know we could do just the box set part of this thing by ourselves if we you know do it mail order only so there's no 
retailers and distributors involved and, you know, no discounts and unpaid invoices and damaged returns and all of that. If we just made a mail order direct to the customer and we made it limited editions so people would realize they don't have the rest of their lives to buy this thing, we could make this work. And that's what we did. That's how Mosaic came into existence, uh, two unemployed guys and a, a, a nice idea. And it didn't work out the way we thought it was going to because we didn't take a salary for the first two years. I was living off of freelance work and Charlie was living off of his credit cards. But it did finally, you know, level out and grow nicely. And so that's how um, Mosaic came into existence. Michael Cuscuna, co-founder of Mosaic Records. To hear more jazz stories, go to jlc.org, where you can also find information on tours by the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra and upcoming events at Rose Hall, the House of Swing. We invite you to support Jazz at Lincoln Center by coming to the House of Swing in New York City or at the new Dizzy's Club next time you're in Dubai. For Jazz Stories, I'm David Gorin. <laughs>